Happy Monday to you all. I hope you had a terrific weekend. Ready to hit the ground running on this Monday morning. It's March 28, 2022, and I am your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer at New Mexico PBS, and this is the New Mexico in Focus podcast. I want to start things off by pulling from our line opinion panel from our most recent show on New Mexico PBS, and a topic we've been talking about a lot on the show, as well as our podcast growing forward. It's cannabis sales, legal recreational cannabis sales start this Friday, April 1st. It's not an April Fool's joke. The time has come Friday at noon. Uh, And again, we will be covering all of the uh, ins and outs and we'll be out there on opening day for Growing Forward, which is our podcast with New Mexico Political Report and KUNM Radio. We'll have a new episode of that out next Tuesday as we catch up with people making some of those first purchases of legal cannabis in New Mexico, recreational that is. And so we encourage you to subscribe for that wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of talk we've had there and here on New Mexico in Focus about the rollout of this program and especially concerns about whether there will not whether there will be enough supply of cannabis, especially for the medical cannabis patients, which are supposed to be kept whole in this process of legalizing recreational use. A reminder here, our line opinion panels this time, former House Minority Whip Dan Foley, also Crystal Ciarza of the Ciarza Digital Group, and Dave Mulryan, friend of the show and founder of the group Everybody Votes. So here now, let's dive right into their conversation with our host, Gene Grant. April 1st, that's the day legal recreational cannabis officially to be sold in New Mexico. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham signed a bill making it legal last year, as you know, but retailers haven't been able to sell legally. That ends next week. Bringing back our line opinion panelists, New Mexico is one of 18 states to legalize recreational marijuana, and now the first legal sales are almost here. We're going to get into some of the specifics of some lingering concerns, like the impact on medical supply, water rights, and usage, and tax revenue. But let's start simply. Uh, Dan, let me start here. Is New Mexico ready after all this? I mean, we've been going at this in the legislature. I'll remind people one of the first ideas was to sell marijuana here in state-run shops. That died, thank God. Are we ready to do this, Daniel Foley? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not sure whether you'd say we're ready to do it or not. It's going to be done. And the reason I, I take that approach, Gene, is, good, good, you know, distinction we, there. we you know, we we've not uh, we haven't handled DWIs very well in the state. And, you know, we're still leading in, in getting that stuff, you mm-hmm. know, with 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 that with that industry. Um, I you know, I do think that it's it's um, it's a unique question. Right. Because at the end of the day, you've got a lot of people who are for less government that are calling for more regulation. Right. You've got a lot of folks who normally call for regulation who are calling for less regulation. Um, I was watching last night and there was an interesting scenario. So uh, as as a disclaimer, too, in my private life, I actually have some clients that are in the cannabis business. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do insurance for them. It's interesting because, you know, I think we're late to the party. Right. There was a when I was in the legislature, there was a real push with Gary Johnson saying, hey, let's be first and we could have this this tourism section, right? But now everybody around us has got it legalized, right? I mean, we're not going to have people flowing over here to do it now. You may see a windfall on southeast in southeastern New Mexico where folks from Texas are coming across because mm-hmm. they don't have it in Texas. 
um, legalized yet. But I'm not sure. I mean, you know, one of the things I noticed, we hear very little. It'd be interesting to see have someone do a, a report. You know, we have very little. Uh, we see very little on what the number of of folks that are going to be out doing the enforcement perspective, the testing perspective. I know for to some instances, the uh, the Department of Ag, you know, I, I think they would tell you mentally they're ready. People wise, they may not be mm-hmm. right. They don't have the right amount of folks out there to be doing the work that needs to be done. And so I just I'm fearful that this is one of those topics where we probably shouldn't get the rollout wrong. Right. It's sort of like opening up a fast food restaurant. You don't want to have two employees open the door and have seven thousand people show up the first day. Right. It's right. probably better at the very beginning to have more employees than you need. I'm not sure we're taking that approach into Mexico when it comes to enforcement and testing and the regulatory side of this, mm-hmm. helping people get the licenses through, training. I'm just not sure we've invested on the front end. Let me, let me kind of add to that. Uh, it's an interesting point, Dan. Kristen Thompson, we've had her here on our show. She's the director of the Cannabis Control Division for the Mexico Regulation and Licensing Department, just to let you know who she is. She's increasing, I'm sorry, they're increasing their number of employees, doubling from 12 to 24 to provide better support for what you're saying, Dan. So we don't know if that 24 number is actually the right number. So this is gonna be sort of feeling our way along here. And Crystal, let me get to something here. The, the National Drug, uh, National Nonprofit Drug Policy Alliance, that's one of the groups concerned about product availability. Worried if there's a rush on recreational uh, businesses, businesses won't have enough to cover medical. Is that a legit concern from what you've been able to glean? It is. I've, I've worked in the cannabis industry before with mm-hmm. several different dispensaries and producers, even went out to Nevada to kind of research the cannabis world, even spoke at a couple of cannabis conferences. And it is a legitimate concern just because of the supply and demand, obviously, that, that we'll be seeing. Mm-hmm. I think that the best, it can actually be a great sales tactics for a producer, or for a distributor, is actually prioritizing the medical first. Because let's look at it this way. Medical can, like if you really wanted cannabis, you were able to get it with a medical card. It wasn't difficult to get a medical card here in town because it's CNPs and doctors that would write that. And so, yes, but it's it's more concerning for in terms of inventory for those that actually need cannabis to just simply eat because of chemotherapy or because of seizures or epilepsy, the, the actual medical needs. And so the right thing for a business to do is to actually section off some of their inventory for medical patients mm-hmm. or some to choose to stay medical, which many of the dispensaries that are currently here right now with chains like Organica, um, like uh, like ultra health, et cetera. Some of those actually, uh, this, not only is this the day that they're waiting for it, they've all been waiting for recreational cannabis. However, one of the conversations that nobody has talked about that I've had to, to look at from a, from a, uh, from a crisis perspective is actually as, as we grow and as we scale, you know, we're looking at horticulture, we're looking at agriculture and keeping cannabis, um, going in terms of, uh, of keeping cannabis growing and growing correctly sometimes pesticides actually come into it. And that's a conversation none of us have actually Mm -hmm. had that if you accidentally put the wrong pesticide to help increase the amount of cannabis that you produce or to protect the amount of cannabis that you grow from from um, harmful bugs or from from just the crop being eaten by just the natural way of things Mm -hmm. happening, uh, pesticides can actually be incredibly problematic for for our crops here, especially with how small that we have 
the the uh, crop count um, currently in New Mexico. Right. That I I actually foresee. Yes, we've got you know the the social justice component of it with expungement. You've got the inventory, but pesticides is actually a topic that we haven't talked about in any of the conference conversations. Mm-hmm. And people could die if they're smoking cannabis with the wrong chemical. In it got plant. it got very little play during the legislative debate. It came up mm-hmm. maybe a couple of times. I really didn't hear mm-hmm. much about it at all. Mm-hmm. And, and and Dave, let me kind of extend Crystal's point here. You know, retailers are required to set aside 20% of their products for medical use. Um, Crystal's making an interesting case though that perhaps there might be a second safety net necessary here because 20% you know, is it should it be 20 30% should it be 40%? I mean I think that all of these things are going to have to be decided. I will say this. Mm-hmm. Prohibition it was ended by Franklin Roosevelt in 1932 on the federal level, right? Mm-hmm. And we are now at 20 22 we're coming up on a hundred years when that's been going on there is still a lot of change and there's a lot of like who gets to sell booze who doesn't get to sell booze sometimes it's controlled state by state or county by county or you know town Mm -hmm. by town there's going to be a lot of players that have regulatory authority here i think new mexico look it's a cash crop i think it's good if we can grow it here i think it's good if we can sell it here and you know it's another expansion of of the economy and i think new mexico could do if we can get the equivalent of hatch green chility in the hatch in 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 cannabis i think that's going to be very good for the state Mm -hmm. and we should work to do that Mm -hmm. hey daniel some environmental concerns with cannabis no doubt uh specifically water use uh water rights groups like the new mexico association lobbied for provisions to prevent to protect community managed water sources uh, didn't pass the regular session either. Should this have been addressed before recreational rollout? Yeah, I think, you know, part of the problems with, with the cannabis from, you know, even back from when we... Oop, still with us there, Dan? Yeah, sorry, you guys muted me. I got muted by the host. I didn't think I said something <laughs> bad. I, I, I'm, I'm confused here. I, I had an itchy finger. Sorry, bro. We got, we got Twitter over there censoring me, taking me off here. I'm getting nervous. Oh. Uh, we, we've got... Uh, we, you know, one of the things that was it was it was early on when we started talking about this, even back when I was in the legislature, was it was amazing how many people felt that there could be a potential problem, right? Whether it was acacia folks, water folks, pesticides, neighborhoods, a lot of this stuff is just going to take like a lot of things. You know, you're going to have to just take the first step and then make the corrections as time goes on, right? I mean, you know, a lot of these. One of the things with a lot of these. A lot of these grows, uh, I think one of the ideas behind limiting the size was to help curtail, curtain, you know, the growth pattern of of the product. You know, like lots of folks are growing it indoors, right? Lots of places are getting old warehouses and they're growing it indoors. So they're able to recycle the water and do things far different than if they went out and planted 2,000 acres out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, were watering it through uh you know, a process that was mm-hmm. that was letting the, the runoff go back into the ditches or yep. back into the, to the ground. So but I think it's these are there. There's a lot of valid questions. That I think a lot of people just kind of, you know, even legislators, you know, someone comes in, raises a point just because you don't act on it doesn't mean you don't agree with them. Lots of times it's like, hey, there's not enough information for That's us right. to do something, but let's watch it and we'll take action when we need to. That's that's not unusual. I appreciate you saying that, Dave. There's one thing about this that that interests me a lot. <laughs> There have been 225 licenses issued, 225 so far, and they're not going to all open on April 1st, certainly, but can we manage, I mean, Arizona opened, I think, with like 70? 
I mean, Massachusetts well, with yeah. about the same number, if not less. Right. Uh, is this manageable, really? Two hundred twenty-five licenses. I mean, it's, uh, no, but but I mean that doesn't mean they shouldn't try, and and I think that's one of the things you're going to see because, also, you know, in some ways, I, I mean, people talk about protected markets and people talk about you know whatever, mm-hmm. but if you have two hundred and twenty-five of these businesses opening, and it becomes clear that only you know fifty of them are actually going to maintain profitability. You know, the market will shake out what's going to happen or they won't. And, you know, and it's just I mean, I'm all about like, I think we should make it accessible to everyone. Yet we've done that. I don't know what kind of, you know, that Arizona has opened so many fewer and there's such a larger state population wise might give one pause. But we'll see. Look, Mm -hmm. you know, we're two weeks away. We're going to find out. That's that's all. That's all we can say. Right? So let me let me ask you one quick question. I got about thirty seconds. If you could be so kind, what does this do to the black market here in New Mexico? Is there going to be a significant change in your view? I'm not asking you to be the you know all-seeing guru of all things marijuana across the state, but this is a debatable question whether this is going yeah. to help on that side of things. Well, the the um, the toxicity is actually where the black market will actually benefit from it in terms of the amount, um, how strong cannabis is, and what are you uh, allowed legally to sell. So, if there are people that actually want a more potent type of cannabis, they're definitely going to be looking to the black market, and that was something that was a problem with with medical cannabis, and still is today. So, mm-hmm. the black market will start to see an effect of this, um, but whether or not it's regulated correctly or not, we'll see. So, here we go. April 1st, thank you again to our panelists. These are all topics you can hear about on the podcast, Growing Forward. Now, in collaboration with New Mexico Political Report, correspondent Megan Kamrick explores the future of the cannabis industry here in New Mexico. You can find Growing Forward anywhere you get your podcasts. Right, now here's environment reporter, Laura Paskus. Mike Hammond is a name you might not He's super familiar with, but he has a very important job, and that is to head up the Office of the State Engineer here in New Mexico, and that is the office that deals with one of our most precious resources, water. So water rights, uh, legal issues around water, water planning, all comes from the Office of the State Engineer, and Mike Hammond was recently appointed to that position by Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, who before that named him as our state's water advisor, and that was in part because we were in between state engineers. But as of right now, anyway, Mike Hammond's still holding both of those hats. And so, again, this is a huge issue and area of focus here in New Mexico. We're just coming out of a legislative session where there were massive budget requests for this kind of work, and so we wanted to catch up to him, find out about his goals and priorities in this new office. So he sat down with our land correspondent, Laura Paskus, and we want to bring that interview to you here. Mike Hammond, welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Thank you, Laura. Very nice to see you. So I'm just going to dive right in. Forecasts are showing that we may be looking at a third La Nina in a row. How worried should New Mexicans be about water right now? Well, um, there are certain basins that are doing reasonably well near the normal snowpack environment up north. Um, We've got the Chama Basin and the upper Colorado looking pretty good. And then as you get farther south, it it starts to decline into the 80s, uh, 70, 60 percent, depending on 
how far, far south you go, but um, it is going to be another challenging year. There's no doubt about it. Um, even when we had reasonable, normal uh, precipitation in previous years, for whatever reason, uh, the, the runoff hasn't produced like it normally does. And that seems to be true also in the Colorado River Basin where this, you know, we benefit from the San Juan Chama project and also the San Juan Basin itself has uh, a lot of water users that uh, rely on that supply uh, on that side of the basin. So uh, the Southwest is definitely shifting into more of a, a post climate change sort of world uh, from a water perspective. So looking at the Rio Grande specifically, um, El Vado is, is empty or empty-ish for construction reasons. We mm -hmm. look at Elephant Butte is about 11% capacity right now. How much slack is there in the system? Um, when you refer to slack in terms of like meeting demands, um, uh, th there's, there's likely to be some, some shortages. Uh, we've been experiencing shortages from the um, in the Rio Grande project from Elephant Butte for some time. And uh, we also had, uh, had experienced some shortages um, from the, the uh, Rio Grande ba Basin um, late in the summer last year. If it wasn't for the monsoons, uh, farmers would have really suffered in the Middle Valley for sure. Um, there's also been some shortages on the San Juan Chama project uh, to the municipal and agricultural contractors from that project. Uh, occurring on and off for the last five or six years. So, so we're certainly in, uh, in a, uh, they, they're calling it a mega drought. It's kind of hard to define that term, but it's persistent for sure. And, um, and, and then if you have kind of average rising temperatures, what, what, what uh, occurs in, in that situation is you have more depletions associated with Every a degree in average temperature rise requires more expiration by plants and, and the environment in general and evaporation from lakes and streams. So you're, you're having this situation where average temperatures climbing creates more depletions even, on, even if you had the same water supply, you're still seeing less availability. So we've seen problems on the lower Rio Grande play out in a sort of battle between states and also the federal government that's now in, in U.S. Supreme Court litigation. Looking toward the middle Rio Grande, are we within our budget, within our water rights, or could we see something similar play out in the future in the middle Rio Grande? Um, since since the runoff of 2019, uh, we've experienced a, an under-delivery to uh, the um, Elephant Butte or Rio Grande project, as we call it. Um, as a result of, of the index uh, at Odoe Gauge, we have to deliver a certain quantity of water. Um, and the irony of a very high runoff is that that means we have to deliver a very high amount. And that year, um, we, we under-delivered for the first time well, on average, uh, uh, consistently under-delivered uh, since 2019. So we find ourselves in a compact debit of about 120 some odd thousand acre feet, which we're taking steps to address uh, with, a f with a uh, following program. The, the uh, legislature agreed to a, a drought mitigation fund that will allow us to try to catch back up and make, make our deliveries uh, to Elephant Butte in order to not uh, get into a compact violation situation at 200,000 acre feet. 
So that's a top priority for, for me and the state uh, this year is to try to make some progress in making not only this year's delivery, but also chip away at that debit. And meanwhile, Alvado's being reconstructed, as you mentioned. Uh, so we're very hopeful that we chip away at that debit and then get Alvado back in place uh, for full use. And then we'll be somewhere near where we could operate in a normal cycle, I think. New Mexico is wrangling right now with what to do with about $4 billion in federal infrastructure money. Mm -hmm. And we had um, infrastructure advisor Martin Chavez on the show recently talking about some of the priorities. I'm right. curious what specific projects will your office be pushing for or advocating for or launching when it comes specifically to water? Well, um, there's a, a strong understanding that rural New Mexico um, has been left behind on a lot of their infrastructure needs. Um, we're, we're not specifically involved in um, community water uh, infrastructure and wastewater. That's more of a New Mexico Environment Department group under their Construction Bureau and their uh, State Revolving Fund. But um, there, there is a tremendous need for all the agencies uh, with uh, the state engineer's office, uh, NMED, um, also um, the New Mexico Finance Authority and the Water Trust Board process to really review uh, what we've done in the past to make sure that we, we prioritize um, allowing for those, uh, those uh, rural communities that don't have the capacity to apply for grants, to implement them, to even manage the construction we want to figure out a way to take full advantage of, of this funding, both at the state and, and federal levels, in order for rural New Mexico to catch up and get their systems in order. And on our end, we're going to be responsible for making sure they have adequate water rights and all of that stuff in, uh, for their 40-year water outlook, uh, like all other communities uh, that have capacity are able to do. So we want to reverse that trend. So nationwide, when people talk about infrastructure and water, dams often come up as, you know, there's unsafe dams nationwide. Right. Is that really a problem here in New Mexico? It certainly is, yeah. We have lots of public and private dams that are aged out, so to speak. Uh, some of them are full of sediment. They have undersized spillways. Uh, we've identified those in our dam safety office, which we're uh, regulators on, on dam safety aspects and uh, we have notified dam owners of the deficiencies that need to be corrected uh, but there are funds available and we're, we're hoping to figure out a way that a regulatory agency can help um, move uh, some of these communities towards uh, fixing their problems so so one of the kind of jumping back to the session one of the things that came up during the session this year um, was were conversations around whether the state's top water boss, you, um, whether that should that should have a requirement that you're a registered professional engineer. Right. Yeah. And I was wondering, can you explain why the state's top water official should be a registered professional engineer versus a hydrologist or an attorney? Or certainly. Well, um, as as the history has evolved, the you know the original territorial engineer uh, was was established uh, pre-1907 uh, that kind of set the, the the priority administration rules up and in, in this state for good or for bad it's you know you could you could argue that um, in many different directions but 
but that's the process that the state chose to, to move forward on, and, and they established uh, a, an extensive suite of regulations and statutes, uh, some 50 of them that, we, that I know of, uh, uh, actually cite the, the authority of the state engineer to carry out um, you know, the laws and, and the administration of, of water in New Mexico. So there, there could be some, you know, to, to do it in a, in a quick and uh, um, I would call it uh, um, unstudied um, manner uh, would, would, would not be appropriate because there would be a lot of uh, possible unintended consequences. Uh, I'm not uh, necessarily saying it shouldn't be done, but we, we're trying to set up a process where it could be evaluated in an open forum with uh, people from around the state where uh, the governor's um, going to be issuing an executive order to establish a, a water policy and infrastructure task force um, that should be announced uh, soon. And in that, in that vein, uh, we'll have a group of folks that will evaluate those types of policies and make recommendations to the interim committee process and to the governor's office and also include recommendations in the 50-year water plan uh, that is uh, due to be released in, in July. So we have a lot of work ahead of us here um, in the next several months, but uh, we certainly see that as an avenue to address the organization of the state engineer's office and whether some other model like what's done in other states might, might fit the bill better. Uh, but we do need to plan for the 21st century needs. Uh, because we have 20th century sort of infrastructure and, and policies and laws that are guiding us into the future, and it's time to, to, to look at that. Mm -hmm. So over the years, you and I have had a lot of conversations. You were with the Bureau of Reclamation for many years and then the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District. And, and I recall, like, through my reporting, you were one of the first really sort of top water officials in New Mexico to talk openly and, and, and forthrightly about climate change. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, you know, through the course of your career in these various water management capacities, you know, what are the biggest changes that you've, that you've seen and had to grapple with as a water manager? I think uh, the, the, the realization, of course, of, of, of the uh, changing uh, water supply situation has been known to folks that pay attention to it um, on a routine basis. Uh, I, I think the public is, is really, you know, just now really fully understanding what we're up against. And, and, um, and that's, that's been a, a challenge uh, to uh, really get folks to understand that yes, there are hydrologic realities and there's things that we need to keep in mind as we we plan various projects and various um, responses to Endangered Species Act and various things like that to try to keep things in balance. But but to me, I think the biggest challenge has been the fact that there there's a whole new suite of demands on the system. Um, they've always been there terms of the environment, the watershed health, and, 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 uh, and the maintenance of the flora and fauna uh, with just the riparian environment and all the necessary things to have a, a healthy ecosystem, but it's, 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 uh, it's, it's maintaining that, that balance in a declining, uh, you know, water supply situation while uh, keeping the traditions and the cultures of New Mexico that is just so special compared to anywhere else in the country. Um, intact because of the way we've evolved as communities, um, 
with the Aseca communities and, the, and, and, our, and our, um, our, our tribal and Pueblo cultures kind of commingling over the centuries um, into what we have today, which is a, a very modern, robust kind of socioeconomic structure that still needs to be supported with, with the basics like water and, 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 and food security and, and, and shelter. Everybody needs that, right? So uh, that balance with uh, the growing demands and, 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 and meeting federal laws under Endangered Species Act and, and making sure that we stay out of court, you know, you spend a lot of money on litigation when you could be using it for, for good projects and things to, to help uh, advance our, our water um, supply uh, needs um, is, is the main challenge right now, mm -hmm. for sure. So kind of final words when it comes to water, what mistakes can we just not afford to make right now? Um, underestimating the the potential for serious drought we need to plan for that and we need to be out ahead of it as much as we possibly can we need to review our our policies and and our infrastructure procedures and operating plans to make sure that we we have enough flexibility in the system to adapt quickly because you know um, you know, I just got off a call on Colorado River operations. What if Lake Powell below the drops below the power pool? That could have a tremendous impact on the on, on the renewable energy that we're using in the Southwest. Um, while we're simultaneously decommissioning coal fire pl power plants, right? So, uh, you know, it, it could be some real serious problems if we don't uh, plan accordingly. And that's that's a. Uh, uh, one of the top jobs that the Interstate Stream Commission and, and our office is, is looking to implement. Mm -hmm. Well, Mike Hammond, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Laura. Always a pleasure. Thanks. <laughs>
Um, and then there was some really good progress throughout the session to add a little bit more uh, funding into our into our program. So we, we did reasonably well, uh, and I'm pleased with the response from the governor and also from the legislature this year. However, it didn't quite uh, go to the full uh, extent of our expansion request. Uh, we do have a lot of technical uh, needs uh, in terms of groundwater uh, uh, modeling and evaluations and making sure that we keep our systems in balance. We have our sister states that have, are, are have a robust degree of, of investment in their, their water resources and their staffing uh, that we are uh, negotiating with in the Colorado River and you know the Texas v New Mexico issue um, and um, some of the other uh, work that we do with uh, our, our, our uh, surrounding states. So it's important for us to be very well uh, geared with highly technical staff and, and good resources for us to uh, essentially work through all the issues that we're facing. And so um, we, we need to ramp that up. Uh, we also have some new requirements placed on us with the Cannabis Act and reviewing, you know, water rights permits for those purposes and various things like that. So our needs are just going to grow with the, with the declining water supplies. So there's going to be more need for more evaluation, looking at balancing all the various uh, water supply possibilities. There's uh, brackish uh, treatment options out there for higher use perspectives, uh, various things that we need to be prepared for and investigate so that we can manage those resources properly and, and not find ourselves in, a, in an unbalanced situation. You mentioned cannabis. We're about a month away from legalizing recreational use cannabis. Do, does your office have any concerns on how that new industry might place demands on water resources? Um, well, I think there's possibilities that, that certain parts of the state, wherever a cannabis operation is setting up, um, might have a little bit of stress added to the, that unique uh, locale. Uh, but that's, that's our job is to make sure that any kind of um, impairment that we see is addressed uh, by that particular purveyor um, or, or the industry as a whole. But it's, it's just like any other, you know, you have the oil and gas industry, you have other things that come and go um, within the economic structure of, of the state. And we want to make sure we keep things in balance and, and one industry doesn't overwhelm a community or other water users. Uh, that's, that's our job as administrators of the resource. So one of the things that lawmakers did during this past session was consider a measure that would have taken away the requirement that cannabis um, applicants have proved their water right. right. And there was a lot of conversation about that. I'm curious, some people say that it's confusing or complicated. Where does confusing. your office <laughs> come in on that? Yeah, we're, we, we feel like we're caught in the middle a little bit on that issue. Um, Senate Bill 100 had mm -hmm. Uh, first of all, they were just trying to address um, background checks and, and, and in that same section of that that they were trying to amend is the issue about water. So there was an amendment by, uh, I believe it was Senator Pirtle that wanted to uh, uh, de, um, I guess, uh, de-authorize uh, or de- uh, min or minimize the need for that upfront check of the water um, permit process. Uh, but across the board, I, I've, I've had a little concern about kind of singling out 
another legal crop that you can grow for a specific, you know, review um, compared to like when the hemp came in, there wasn't a requirement to review the water rights for somebody that wanted to grow hemp. Um, and now this this came in, and I think it was because of a particular grower that was doing medical growing up maybe in the Pina Blanca area that was using the municipal system there that was overwhelming that system and that was um, a problem that can be regulated even by the own their own the mutual domestic themselves by not allowing for uh, a commercial use to hook up to their system so there's there's ways we can deal with that um, problem um, and and having the review on the front end kind of uh, I, I would say totally complicated the process of getting um, you know good actor uh, cannabis producers up and running on a timely basis but on the other hand we do have to make a, a, a concerted effort to make sure the bad actor side of the, any any kind of uh, water use is, is controlled mm-hmm. gonna continue on that train of bringing you some extra content now that you can only get here on the podcast or if you follow us on social media. On Friday, we did a, a Facebook Live with a group of very talented journalists here in New Mexico really talking about sustainable journalism uh, and how business models have changed and how many small news outlets walk such a fine line between sustainability and having to close the doors and turn off the lights. And so we'll start out that conversation with Leota Harriman of The um, Independent, which covers the East Mountains, a weekly paper there and, and website that does a lot of terrific work. But like a lot of places, was hit with COVID recently within the last couple months, which meant they did not have people healthy enough to keep things rolling. And they are doing everything in their power to come back to life now but it's difficult in the economic uh, situation that all of us are in right now and the state that journalism is in. So fascinating conversation. Also included in that group, Peter Rice. We've talked to him before, but he runs the Downtown Albuquerque News website, which is an interesting outlet in and of itself, super hyper-focused on about a four-mile square area in downtown Albuquerque. Um, But Peter uses a subscription model and provides just a ton of depth on issues important to very narrow audience. And that's one of the interesting things uh, and one of the great things about journalism and the way things are headed, but also creates its own challenges. And then yet another perspective, we had Ryan Lowry. He's a freelance journalist, does a lot of work for a lot of different uh, papers. You may have seen his name in the Albuquerque Journal even at times, and does a fair amount of work for the Las Vegas Optic up in northern New Mexico. He's also the president of the uh, Rio Grande chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists, so he does a lot of work with journalists all over the state, even into Texas and El Paso. And so just a terrific conversation here about the changing media landscape and the challenges that uh, hardworking journalists in the state are going through to bring you important news and update about the news of the day where you live. And uh, so we hope you enjoy this. We thought it was really interesting, and we'll do it again here soon. There's a lot more to get into, but let's jump into that conversation. Here's host Gene Grant. 
Thanks, Kevin McDonald. Really appreciate it. Hey, folks, welcome. It's noonish on Friday. We're usually on Wednesday, but Friday we have a special go here today talking about sustainable local journalism. This is something I've been wanting to get after for a bit now, and I can tell you this will be the first of a few conversations. Uh, we're not going to wrestle this to the ground here. It's a big subject, but gratefully, we've got some wonderful people here with us, and we're going to talk about the real issue of news deserts. We struggle with this here in New Mexico. In many ways, there are a lot of good people chomping at this in, in many ways, and three of them are here with us today. Uh, we've got Leota Harriman. She's the editor and publisher of The Independent in Edgewood, and I have a smile on my face because she can find room for one of our favorite people we have on the show. You might know who she is. Uh, <laughs> I know you do, Leota. She's one of the wonderful <laughs> writers for you. Um, yeah. We've also got Ryan Lowry. He's a freelance journalist often does work with Las Vegas Optic, among other local and national outlets. He's also president of the local chapter of the Society for Professional Journalists. And we welcome back Peter Rice, who has been with us before. Very pleased to have Peter. He's the editor of Downtown Albuquerque News, a hyper-local online news site covering, of course, downtown Albuquerque and surrounding areas. And thank you all for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Leona, let me start with you. Um, you know, one of the things at our shop here at New Mexico PBS, that really caught our eye was what you wrote on Facebook a few weeks ago about what you've had to deal with through the pandemic and other things. I, I, I wanted though start with the independent. When did it start? Who does it serve? What's the area? Then we'll get into what you actually wrote and some of the challenges you're facing out there. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the independent is a, is a weekly community newspaper. We cover about 4,000 square miles in the center of New Mexico. Um, Eastern Bernalillo County, Southern Santa Fe County, and all of Torrance County, and even a little bit of the periphery of that if it weren't, it's warranted. Um, we're a weekly print newspaper, at least we were until um, the end of January. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we cover town, town, we cover high school sports, we cover, you know, all the things, a few regional issues. Um, we don't really get too deeply into regional issues because we haven't got to staff, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's about, oh, it's been around since 1999. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, created um, in Tijeras by a guy named Wally Gordon. Mm -hmm. um, we had an employee buyout from him in uh, 2010. And there were four of us initially, and I'm the last one, uh, you know, still crazy enough to want to try and do this. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> Bless your heart. Interesting. Now, what's the staff currently? Is it just you at this point, Leona? Or do you have uh, the staff currently is decimated. Um, you know, I got COVID in uh, at the end of uh, January, was out for all of February. And, you know, we're a, um, we're a family business. And so I have my, my daughter and my son-in-law working for me and they both had to you know, take a job um, in a nutshell. So our staff is minimal currently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If there, what's the, if there was one challenge, I know the obvious answer is money here, but if there was one big challenge just keeping you from getting back to where you were before, what would it be? Is it, is it finding quality reporters and employees? I mean, we get a good amount here. Is it finding the advertising? What's the biggest challenge you're facing right now? Uh, the biggest, biggest challenge is probably finding the advertising. Yeah. Uh, you know, our, our bread and butter is really mom and pops. 
and they've been hit really hard by the pandemic as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've had throughout 2020 and 21, we had people saying, we can't advertise. We don't even know if we're going to be open next week. Right. Um, and as a person currently in that position, I can, I have a lot more empathy for that now um, mm -hmm. because it's a real struggle when you don't know if you can make payroll, you don't know if you can buy your product, you don't know if you can do anything, let alone promote your business. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's probably the biggest is, you know, because the model of newspapers has been so heavily reliant on advertising. Right. Um, if you have any, if there's any glitch with the advertisers, the newspaper, you know, maybe a few steps down the road, but really feels that impact. That's um, a key point. So, That's a key point there. Yeah. There's no getting around that, is there? Have you, have, it, it, yeah, I'm going to ask this of Peter because he has a different model, a subscription based model here, but I'm curious if you've been flirting with that idea as well for the independent. We do have a, we have a membership model more so than a subscription model. So the idea is to diversify revenue away from a, you know, almost total dependence on advertising. Mm -hmm. Get people in the community who think that having a newspaper around is a is a good thing, a valuable thing, a way to support us directly. Um, in the past month, we've had a ton of people sign up for that. It's fantastic. Ah. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's a real. There's a it's, there's a little bit of a gray area there between membership and subscription, and you know, so we're we're definitely finding our way through it. It's all pretty new to us. Yeah. Uh, this, but are there any, any national models out there you'd like to sort of pursue their way of doing it? it, it the, is there is there a goal? I guess I'm asking that you say I want to be like you know whoever's running that shop and seems to be doing okay. Anything out there that grabs you? No, I don't think there no. really is. I think pretty much all of us are in the same boat of just trying to figure out how in the hell to move forward in. Right you know, in the face of the internet and the face of a pandemic and the face of all kinds of, you know, mistrust of journalists. Um, you know, I figure every newspaper from us to the New York Times has got basically the same issues. Right. Yeah. There's a couple of models that I don't like. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm pretty adamant about keeping our news on the outside of our paywall, for example. Right. Interesting point there. Hey, Peter Rice, you, when did you start downtown Albuquerque News? What, what, what month, what year was that? That was August of 2019. Ah, how quickly good times go. I didn't realize it was that far back. <laughs> yeah, so, a few things have happened. That's right. Now, let folks know about a little bit about your background, too. You didn't just pop out of the earth and start this publication. You've been in the <laughs> news business for a while. Uh, so go ahead. Tell us about your background as well. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I've done some work for KUNM over the years and uh, for the Albuquerque Tribune right before it uh, uh, went out of business there. Uh, before that, I mean, I, I, I was a weird, nerdy homeschooler, so I was, I was doing community radio and, and right. fun things like that back when I was a teenager uh, growing up in Olympia, Washington. So uh, I, I hate to admit it, but I think I'm almost uh, a veteran at this business, but That's probably right, means I'm over. That's right. <laughs> Why downtown Albuquerque as a news beat? I'm so curious. Uh, well, I live here, so that was uh, an obvious, uh, <laughs> an obvious answer. Uh, cause mm -hmm. so I, I kind of had a heads up on that. It was an advantage. I knew where everything was more or less. And it, um, I think from a journalistic perspective, it's, it's easier to do a niche publication 
about uh, an area that kind of has a coherent sense of itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, the river, I-25, I-40, those are all not just literal physical dividing lines, but they are major psychological dividing lines. And if you live on one side of those, you kind of think a certain way and orient right. towards certain things. And if you live on the other side, you think a different way and you orient toward different things. So it was a, it was a good little niche to, to, to mine there. Mm -hmm. There is no lack of reporting on, you know, what you've been able to dig up. I, you know, I honestly had no idea there was so much going on. I live down here too. And until your publication came out, I didn't realize there was so much going on around me, honestly. I'm curious what the feedback's been from downtown folks. Is this, well, how have you been received since uh, 2019? I'd say pretty well. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, it is, it is, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty well here and, and, Crickets everywhere else, because like I said, it is it is it is it, uh, it is, sorry, it is a downtown publication. Mm -hmm. And frankly, if you live in Knob Hill, even or <laughs> the North Valley, right. you probably don't care. Uh, yeah. But like you're right, there is a lot going on down here. I was actually kind of worried at one point that maybe I would run out of news, uh, but I'm having the opposite problem. There's uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on, and and part of that is just because it is the city center. There's a lot of redevelopment. Mm -hmm. Uh, stuff uh, happening all the time, uh, you know, seat of government, all that sort of thing. So there's there's plenty to do. In retrospect, I probably shouldn't have been worried. <laughs> well, it's easy to say now. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> you had to worry at the time. Um, your business model. I'm, I'm very curious about it. Ian, your decision to go the route that you went. Tell us about the model first and then the, the decision behind it. Sure, it's it's purely subscription. Uh, if if you want to read downtown Albuquerque news, you pay ten bucks a month or a hundred bucks a year, uh, and it gets emailed to you. Uh, so the advantage there is it's uh, I mean it's it's definitely a paywall of sorts, although things do have a way of leaking out from time to time. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's uh, that's the basic model. I decided to go that way because it seemed really simple. Mm -hmm. And it is the way that uh, journalism has primarily survived over the years. Uh, and I thought it was a it was a time in our business when, uh, to borrow the the airline announcement, we need to um, make sure our own oxygen masks are functioning before we assist others. So I figured that was that was the most sustainable way to go uh, mm -hmm. with that. So and yeah, working working just fine so far. You know, as these things go, sometimes it's sort of a backward situation. What I mean by that is advertisers sometimes lay back and watch a situation. And I'm curious if you're finding you might have some retail people in downtown inquiring about advertising with you. Has any of that uh, happened at this point? Yes, that has happened several times. Uh, so far, I've turned them all down. Um, for one thing, uh, we are sustainable at this point. Uh, yeah. Uh, we have problems. Finances are not one of them. Um, so it's not strictly necessary to go the advertising route. I think it's also potentially very problematic to go the advertising route when you're dealing with a hyperlocal niche publication like we are, because you could easily get into a situation where a few people uh, want to advertise and they're all going to wind up as your sources uh, at some point. So right. both because of the fact that it's not necessary and it's kind of a fishbowl down here mm -hmm. and conflicts of interests are, um, uh, you know, potentially uh, out there and, and, and knee deep. 
yeah. we've avoided it so far. I have yeah. thought about like maybe doing some kind of classified ad thing or something. Sure. Somebody wants to advertise their garage sale. I think they, they probably couldn't buy me off with, uh, you know, a $15 announcement like that or something like that. But, uh, but basically, no, I think, I think the, uh, you know, the, the sort of standard pay to play model that dominated the local news business until about 2005 is, is working just fine for us. There you go. I want to come back with some other questions, but I hate making Ryan hang out there so long, just watching and listening. Sorry, bro. First of all, love that hoodie. That's some good stuff. Is that for sale? Where did you buy that? I need to know. <laughs> Raygun. Uh, I believe it's just RaygunShirts.com, I think is the website. Okay. They're a big supporter of journalism, um, Midwest company, and they make this that comes in t-shirts and stuff too. So I'm all over it. Thanks for rocking it today. Hey, man, yeah, I've got a lot of things for you as a freelancer. Certainly, I've been there, too. But let me start with SPJ, Society of Professional Journalism, Journalists. Sorry. Uh, tell us about the organization. First, a lot of folks, again, if you're not in the business, don't know what it's about. So if you'd be so kind. Yeah, I mean, we, we represent, it's, it's a national organization that represents journalists across uh, the U.S. Um, there are multiple chapters in either states or regions. Uh, SBJ Rio Grande represents um, all of New Mexico and West Texas. We have adopted uh, the El Paso region and uh, other parts of West Texas too. And, I hadn't uh, realized that, wow, yeah, that's, a yeah, big, that's a big region. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, we're here to support journalists and journalism any way we can. Um, do that a lot of ways through trainings and workshops. Um, we're, we're big on supporting student journalists. We work a lot with um, student journalists from the Daily Lobo at UNM and also some from the Roundup at MSU. Uh, so yeah, so we're, we're here to support journalists and journalism. Now you, your world involves, you know, one foot's in the SBJ side, but the other foot of course is your, you know, your work. I, I'm just, I'm curious, how many outlets are you, are you currently uh, submitting to at this point? Are, I'm just oh, curious. I, uh -huh. I mean, I, I regularly contribute to uh, about three or four. Um, you know, my, my work has, has been in multiple publications across New Mexico, including the, the Journal of New Mexican, Santa Fe Reporter. Um, I've written for both uh, the Independent and Downtown Albuquerque News. Um, I'm a regular contributor, as you said, to the uh, Las Vegas Optic in Las Vegas, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that, that one is, that's where most of my, my time goes, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's spread out amongst others. Shout out to the Optic, by the way. That's a neat publication. We're big fans at New Mexico PBS. There's no doubt on that. Uh, yeah. Ryan, your, your viewpoint of the world and where things sit right now, I, again, I appreciate that you, you're you know, you sit with multiple editors, you sit with multiple publishers, you sit, you know what I mean? You have a different perspective on these things. Where is independent journalism in New Mexico at, at this point in your view? I think it's, I think it's in a better place than, than probably a lot of people suspect or think of it as. Um, I mean, journalism worldwide is, it's, it's tough right now. Um, and, uh, you know, constantly under attack and we've been labeled the enemy of the people by former leaders and things like that, that doesn't help. Um, so it's, you know, it's an industry that's definitely been beaten up and as journalists, I think many of us feel beaten up, um, but New Mexico has a fantastic close knit journalism community. Um, there are so many talented and dedicated journalists here. Um, so I, you know, I think, I think that strengthens all of journalism in terms of independent journalism 
it's a good pool to draw from of, of people who care, who people who want to tell stories in their community and uh, inform. So uh, I think I think it's pretty strong um, in a industry that's that's rough in general. Yeah. Let me ask you another question here, Ryan and Leota. I'd like you to pick up on this as well. Uh, all businesses rise or fall about on this simple thing. You're either growing or you're shrinking. And I, I guess I'm, I'm curious, uh, starting with you, Ryan, how do we grow more readers of independent news sites? That, that seems to be the biggest challenge here and get people to stop defaulting to the bigger publications automatically. Uh, awareness is probably key. I think there are a number of, of independent publications and they don't necessarily have the visibility that some of the larger outlets have. And, you know, a lot of people probably don't know that there are targeted publications like downtown Albuquerque news that they can even go to. So um, getting that word out is, is tough. And, um, you know, for those outlets, how to do that advertising costs, a lot of money that's that's going to be a huge chunk of an investment for anyone running an independent outlet um so you know other 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 ways of uh getting it out there social media word of mouth yeah i think those can help a lot of outlets mm -hmm. leo i'm sure you're you're fighting this battle every morning you wake up how do i get more readers that can make my numbers better that advertisers can then respond to how, how does an independent do that they attract more readers on a regular basis well, um, a couple of things. Um, we try not to run, you know, bad writing. Mm. Um, I feel like I try to remind myself often that the thing that we're putting out here is reading material. And as a lifelong and dedicated reader, um, you know, if you run into sort of garbage writing or, you know, a lot of punctuation mistakes or something, you know, it's just, it's a real turnoff. So um, we try to have really high quality writing to the best of our ability. Mm -hmm. um, I think the main thing is, uh, is to be relevant. You know, you gotta be covering the things that people want to know about um, or the things that they don't know that they wanna know about. Right. Um, I had a conversation with my my grandson a couple of days ago, he's turned 16 in a few weeks. And uh, I was trying to point him towards something that we had put in the independent. And he was going, oh, you know. Um, and so I asked him, well, you know, what do you, what do you want to do to stay informed? And how, if you want to find out something going on, you know, what do you do? Um, and he said, oh, I just Google it. And I said, well, okay, great. But what if the what if the hit that you get is a newspaper? Because <laughs> he was like, I just don't want to read newspapers. Don't want to read a newspaper. Don't want to read a newspaper. So I said, what if your Google hits a newspaper? He still doesn't want to read it. Um, I know, I know. <laughs> how do you get how do you get around that kind of thing? I don't know. I mean, I think that's the holy grail in newspapers right now. When we figure that out, then we're all right. gonna you know, sleep easy. <laughs> well, so, so I, you make an interesting point, there, not to cut you off, but it, it is a generational thing, part of the problem, isn't it? Younger people are just not in the habit of, of picking up a paper every day. Yes. And so we do things like uh, free distribution in the schools and ah. we try to put a lot of young people into the newspaper so that they have a reason to want to open the thing up. Right. Um, so we try to put kids in, we try to put teenagers in, we've got the high school sports. Um, and I also feel like that's a, you know, that's a population whose voice 
is not heard enough in the pages of newspapers and that's young people, kids, teenagers, early twenties, that kind of thing. So why would they pick up a newspaper if there's nothing relevant to them? So we try to put that kind of stuff in. Um, I don't know. I think the old, the old saw about trying to have something for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, we do that. You know, we really try to have a variety of stuff to, if this doesn't strike your fancy, maybe that will. Um, but at the core, I, I really always come back to, you know, good writing, good reporting, and, uh, and relevance. And I think if you can get those things down, then people are going to look for what you have, you know, has the independent reported on this yet? Because I want to know, you know, what's, what's what. Yeah, I like the way you said that. Exactly. When you get that reputation that, you know, these guys can say this, but I know my home paper is going to say this, you know, that's, that's the holy grail right there. That's interesting. Now, Leota, you, you mentioned a phenomenal square mile, square mile footage that you have to serve. That is unbelievable. I have to imagine that is a lot of disparate needs as well when it comes to news inside. That. Give us again the square miles you're dealing with here. <laughs> It's approximately 4,000 square miles. So if you, if you can imagine a square that goes from, you know, maybe Madrid over to Stanley, south down to Estancia Willard, back west over to Mountain Air, and then back up through the, you know, the Manzanos and the Sandias, and everything in the middle of that. Wow. It's hugely diverse. There's a bunch of it that's bedroom communities for Albuquerque. There's, you know, area wise, the majority of it is very rural, you know, not mm -hmm. so much suburban, but actual, you know, rural. I'm surprised that my chickens haven't uh, made a big ruckus yet. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's so it's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of poverty in some areas of it. Other areas of it are extremely affluent. Um, wow. You know, it's, it is all the way diverse. The yeah, ones, the one thing that we don't have in the area that we cover, which is makes it unique and a little bit weird in New Mexico is that there's no, um, there's no Pueblo, there's no, there's no real native presence. Hmm. Um, but aside from that, it's, uh, it's about as diverse as you'd want it to be. That is fascinating. You might have be running one of the most fascinating news publications ever because of that. <laughs> that, that I, I'm honest to gosh, that is yeah. amazing to me. A fourth that when I picture my mind's eye, how you just described that square, there's a whole lot of interesting stuff there that is very interesting. And Peter, yeah. you're on the exact opposite. Again, we covered this, but you have a zone you described earlier. It ain't 4,000 miles square, that's for sure. <laughs> but it is pretty deep. And, and that's, the, that's the opposite. Like, to, to my mind, I'm always saying, how does Peter keep up with the rotation that comes very quickly, it, probably more quickly than any other part of, of the state of New Mexico, arguably, when you think about it? So... How, you sources, you have to really run this like a good old fashioned newspaper and cultivate a lot of relationships and have people feeding into you, things like that. Is that part of your, your work as well? Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm fascinated by the, by the comparison uh, with, with the Independent and Edgewood because <laughs> it, seems, it seems utterly absurd and our business models are opposite. almost polar opposites, yeah. but, uh, but in some ways, it's very similar yeah. because uh, I've long thought that small town papers did a better job of covering their constituents than big town papers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I came to Albuquerque from a small town paper on the Oregon coast. And I'm pretty much 
for, for downtown Albuquerque news, all I did was copy that model, uh, bring it in, you know, into a purely digital age. So, you know, I don't have a printing press or anything like that. Uh, and plant it on what I think are four or five square miles uh, in downtown Albuquerque. So one square mile for every thousand that uh, wow. uh, Leona's got to deal with. Um, but yeah, it really is, you know, in a small town paper, you can you can get to know everybody. You have a, a pretty close beat. You go to a, a lot of meetings. Uh, you go to a lot of coffees. Um, and you um, and it really helps to live in the area. And you can walk around and notice story ideas, even when you're on your day off or something. Yeah. Uh, and you can you can really go deep in in both a small town and a small part of a big town. Uh, and I think that that really is the, the sort of atomic level of local journalism. Like when I was at the Tribune, uh, you know, covering a metro area, it did not feel like local journalism. Technically, it was. It certainly wasn't the New York Times. Uh, but you're kind of skimming above this massive metro area of, you know, seven, eight hundred thousand people. Uh, and it is extremely difficult to impossible uh, to really get down into the, the nitty gritty of things to the point where you can report stories from the ground up. In other words, you can, uh, uh, for, for what Leona does, I imagine, uh, for what I do, you can just notice things before the officials are talking about them. Uh, stuff happens at a neighborhood association meeting or you, know, you meet someone on the street or you just walk by and you notice something's a little different. That, that becomes the story that you then bring the higher ups in. Uh, you know, when I was working at a Metro paper, it was just the opposite. Uh, we didn't have time to get down to the nitty gritty of the beat. And so we were doing this, uh, this you know, taught down journalism that I really don't think uh, rang as true as what I do today and what I did at a small town paper in Oregon. So, uh, Leona, we're not so different, you and I, as the movie villains like to say. I, like I agree. And, you know, as, as we've been going through this conversation, I have the same uh, the same feelings. It's fascinating, the, the similarities but I think at, at the core, we're both doing the same thing, which is the hyper-local, um, you know, you undoubtedly have to have more depth than we've got. Because, mm -hmm. you know, when you're covering five town councils or whatever, it's, you're always kind of playing catch up. But I think it's, I think it's absolutely fascinating as well. It's, mm -hmm. uh, Ryan, let great. me ask you from the Las Vegas uh, optic, of course, I'm, you know, Rivero, New Mexico is a lot different than downtown Albuquerque. And I'm curious... <laughs> about your ge ge geographic uh, uh, imprint for the Las Vegas Optic, first of all, how, how far do you guys cover? Uh, officially, San Miguel County and Mora counties, um, mm -hmm. it's, it's down, it's not quite, I, I still don't think it's as big as Leota's uh, coverage area, but we're talking uh, very focused on Las Vegas, but yeah. down into Pecos, um, up into rural Mora, Sometimes beyond, if there's something that connects a story to to either of those counties, mm -hmm. uh, but those are two very big counties, uh, very rural counties. Um, so you have Las Vegas, which is only something like seven square miles as a city, about sixteen thousand people, um, and then you you have a lot of rural area that we also do cover. Mm -hmm. Do you find there's you know again, it's kind of a silly question. Rural folks have different needs than. Uh, so-called urban folks, but you're talking about a city of Las Vegas, like I said, about 16,000 people. Is there much of a difference in the coverage between, you know, Las Vegas proper and outside of Las Vegas? 
Um, yes and no. I mean, yeah. in Las Vegas, we we have there are two uh, school districts for a relatively okay. small town, which is yeah. kind of uncommon. Um, you know, there's a uh, university, New Mexico Highlands University. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, there's a lot of, of education coverage to to think about within town. Um, aside from that, then when you when you get into um, uh, county commission as mm-hmm. a coverage thing, so that that encompasses a lot of those rural areas. That that's what affects them most is what mm-hmm. county commissioners decide. Uh, and then too, you just have crime and the other general happenings um, throughout the area. So there there is there is a definite difference in what's covered um, in the rural area versus in Las Vegas proper. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, a lot of those things are linked, uh, particularly with government coverage and, and those kinds of things. Right. I could imagine. It's been no, sh- I mean, you know, just thinking back, there's no share of controversy that's emanated out of that city as well. You guys have had to cover. I mean, you think back, not that long back, you had very high profile you know, former New Mexico politicos getting in trouble when they're running the university. I mean, there was a lot, there's a lot of controversy that has bubbled up in your area. I mean, you guys have knocked it out over the years. I'm I do have a question. I'm curious, Leo to mention something that I've talked about with a lot of people. That's the basic sort of the blocking and tackling about how to build readership and doing it through that coverage of high school sports and noting teenagers by name. Is that a standard thing you guys do as well that you find draws uh, readers as well? At the optic, yeah. Sorry, yes, my fault. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, sports coverage is a huge uh, portion of what the optic does. Right. Um, that is, you know, Leo, I mentioned earlier those things that are important to to your readers, and that's, mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, two school districts, two high schools. Um, right. High school sports are a big part of of life in any small town. Las Vegas is no different. Uh, yeah. So definitely, I mean, I, I think most people like to see their name in the paper um, right. and you have you have uh, not only student athletes but students doing great things uh, winning awards getting scholarships things like that yeah. uh, it deserves recognition and certainly that does improve readership to both um, the community is interested in it but uh, absolutely families and, and the parents of those kids are, are ecstatic yeah. you see that in the paper isn't that something peter do you do any sports i've not seen any sports for i mean Beyond covering the stadium thing, that sort of counts, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that was probably more a development story. Yeah. No, uh, we're not. We're not really set up well for sports. Um, you know, our our one m- most students in in Greater Downtown go to Albuquerque High, so there is mm-hmm. obviously a sports program there. But it's you know, it's it's way more than it's it's much bigger than Greater Downtown. So uh, I'd say the 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 sort of coverage we do that is roughly equivalent to to that in terms of it being like a big social uh, gathering spot that's kind of unique to an area is is probably uh, around restaurants and mini libraries. Wow. Uh, so restaurants are are kind of a you know a touchstone that we all have in common and that's fun, right? It's not we have we have less fun touchstones that we could certainly and often do talk about. Uh, but that's you know the downtown especially being you know between old town and downtown, there's a lot of we have more than our share basically of restaurants. So uh, so we we write about those. Uh, and so that's kind of a 
a fun gathering spot. But once a month, I head out and uh, just highlight good books in the 26 mini libraries we have in greater downtown. Uh, so that's that's kind of the uh, that's, I, I guess, in a similar category, although I know I'm, I'm stretching this a little bit, but uh, that's sort of the the rough equivalent of the the sort of raw social awesomeness that is a Friday night high school football game or something like that. I think that's right. that's probably what we do in, in greater downtown. Good point. Hey, Peter, again, I mentioned controversy with Ryan. And of course, I'm, I'm curious your approach during the uh, tragedy at Washington Middle School, which is uh, in your bailiwick, in your coverage. Did you do anything with it? And if you did, what was it? Or if you didn't, was it a conscious decision to let the other publications in town handle that end of uh, downtown? It was mostly that. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I think um, the, the notion of, you know, a, a dozen or so journalists converging on town, uh, on downtown to do a story about something. Right. Uh, if that sort of thing is happening, my first question is, can I add anything to this? Um, and in the case of the, uh, the shooting and the immediate aftermath, the answer was pretty much no. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would just, you know, I'd link to other stories maybe, uh, do do a couple of briefs here and there, nothing nothing too major. But uh, kind of after that, a few weeks after that, when when there started to be some some of the neighborhood groups started to do some uh, things to kind of respond to that, um, I was covering that. And in fact, there's still there's more to come along that uh, along those lines. There's still some conversations about how the the community can kind of reach out and and do what they can to help and and make them feel supported and uh like like we've got their back so but yeah that's the the basic philosophy and the, and the same went for the um the shooting surrounding the uh the the statue in old town uh back in back in 2020 uh at the height of the the blm uh protests mm -hmm. uh, you know my my basic philosophy is if the new york times shows up on my beat i'm gonna let them go ahead and do that uh mm -hmm. and then because there's you know we're at half the capacity we we were 20 years ago in terms of overall employment of journalists and duplicating our efforts doesn't seem like a really smart thing to do if we can avoid it that's a good i, I like the way you put that that it, it, these decisions have to be made don't they you only have so much time in the day <laughs> like what are you going to cover absolutely hey yeah. leona are, are letters to the editor still a thing I, I i when i was a kid letters to the editor like showed me the world do you know what i mean I, it, yes Letter, uh -huh. Letters to the editor are absolutely still a thing. Uh, we get a we get a fair number of them. Um, publish up ninety five percent of them. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, if if it doesn't contain libel and it's not gibberish, I publish it. Basically, um, that's the, that's the that's where we draw the line. Gee, uh, we even yeah, do that too. You know, we have. A, them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a thing. Love People it. like them. It's still. You know, it's it's first place I turn in the paper. Yeah, I hear that. Ryan, how about you? Letters to the editor at the Optic and the other places you work at, still a thing? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I can't yeah. speak to to Phil Shear, uh, editor of the Optics um, criteria, if they're the same as Leota's. But I like uh, Leota's criteria there. That was yeah. I, I think that's probably that should be probably an industry standard yes. criteria. So I agree. Yeah, I absolutely. think. It too funny. I, I always felt like, you know, if people, you know, and, and this happens at Channel 5 as well, if someone sits down and takes their time to put pen to paper and all the steps that are involved there, either getting a stamp, mailing it, or just submitting it online, 
I've always felt like that's something that has to be respected. That's a very special relationship that you have to be very tender with. Because, you know, folks are putting themselves out there with an opinion. That's not an easy thing to do for a lot of for a lot of people. And things can kind of come their way because of that. And Leota, I just, you know, sometimes in small town life, that's sort of the way it goes. A lot of chatter, a lot of, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we have there. We've had a few a few times where we had you know little uh, letter wars going back and forth where people are well on June third so and so said you know uh, it's the best I love it but they're fun and it's it's you're right it's a place where where the public is really really interacting with the with the newspaper and I agree with you I think that's a really that's a special moment and that's valuable and those are the people who are the most engaged with what we do. And not only what we do, but, you know, sort of the community at large. And uh, so, yeah, I, I really try to. It, it is the original comment section. You can't always do it. No. Second, Ryan? It is the original comment section, though. Yes. Get yeah. into those battles, those arguments. <laughs> only is it, is, it, is, uh, it is moderated. You know, we don't, uh, I don't publish anything that is, you know, an attack or especially a personal attack um you know we have a we have a standard um and it it does have to go past me as the editor right. to to get on the page so right. and i think that over time i think that people in the community have come to know that if you send us a nasty you know rage letter it's not going to it's not going to be independent right right i can imagine I, I can't thank you guys enough for this conversation it took a little bit longer than i uh, planned on because there's so many interesting things to talk about that's for sure but Leota, I, I do want to say, and we talked about this in our shop, it, if there's any way we can help out at all with getting your deal going again, you've had a rough patch here, whatever we can do to help, yep. you know, we really, we're just open. Just let us know, Kevin, myself, anybody, uh, just, you know, this is important. And of course, Peter and Ryan, the same, of course, I, I, I tend to see these things as us augmenting each other. And there's ways PBS can help out folks that are in the independent news business as well especially in that idea of getting the word out, frankly, about who you are. It all, it just all starts there. And we just want to be part of that mix and help you guys out with that as, way, as well. So that's why we did what we did today. And hopefully we can do something a little bit more later as things go down the road. You never know. It's a quickly changing industry. You know, it could be very different eight months from now. So we'll have to yeah. see how that goes. So Peter, Leota, and Ryan, thank you very much. Good stuff. I really appreciate it. And, uh, uh, it's going to work out, Leota. Don't you worry. It's going to work out. <laughs> I, you know, we, we actually have a plan to resume our weekly print uh, press wow. run next Friday. Um, oh, wow. Okay. So it has, it's been a really rough couple of months and a really rough couple of years, but um, I think uh, we're going to come through it. I'm feeling, I'm feeling optimistic. That's right. I think the independent is going to live on. Perfect last word in it. Yes, it will. All right, guys, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. And folks, tonight, don't forget, tune in at 7 o'clock, Channel 5.1 for New Mexico in Focus. We've got some great coverage. Oh, man, too many things to talk about, but a lot of Santa Fe, a lot of Roundhouse. I can tell you that. That's for sure. So until next time for Facebook Live, we'll see you. Enjoy the weekend. It's going to be warm.
That will do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Again, I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We thank you so much for listening. We're hard at work this week on a brand new episode. Got some really fun stuff coming up for you. Don't want to spill the beans too early, but can't wait to bring it to you this Friday. And we encourage you to uh, keep up with us throughout the week on all our social media channels, Twitter and YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, And we'll have plenty more for you there as well. Be sure to leave us a review here on the podcast. That really helps us out with this effort. If you appreciate it at all, show us some of the love. We really do appreciate that. And um, spread the word. Get other people to subscribe. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank the entire New Mexico In Focus and New Mexico PBS team for all of their hard work each and every week. And until next time, stay safe, stay healthy.